The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone to our mini Buddhist studies class, our two-week Buddhist studies class. Some of you probably haven't been in the Buddhist studies programs before. It's an ongoing Monday night class, but we take breaks uh, for a few weeks and then another eight-week class or another six-week class, just depending on the season. And usually at the end of the summer, we do a very short refresher on love because it's easy to forget about this capacity of the heart. And it isn't so much that we're making ourselves be loving, but we're in a sense, we're finding our way back to this natural capacity and we're remembering its relevance. Like, oh, this is, this is good. There's this wonderful passage that Kendrick sent me from a book. Um, some of you have heard it before, but it's worth hearing it again. It's from Gwendolyn Brooks, who wrote Maud Martha. So it's just a passage from a book, and it goes like this. Go home to your children, she urged. To your wife or husband, she opened the trap. The mouse vanished. This is poignant because some of you who have been out at the retreat property, Common Grounds Retreat property, one of the almost daily tasks are taking the no-kill mouse traps, walking a couple hundred meters into the woods or down the road, and releasing the mouse, and trying to do it as soon as the mouse gets caught, so they're not trapped in this little claustrophobic mouse trap for too long, because they panic, as you, as you or I would too, I'm sure. So it goes on. Suddenly she was conscious of a new cleanliness, cleanness in her. A wide air walked in her. A life had blundered its way into her power, and it had been hers to preserve or destroy. She had not destroyed In the center of that simple restraint was creation. She had created a piece of life. It was wonderful. Why, she thought, as her height doubled, why, I'm good, I'm good. She ironed her aprons, her back was straight, her eyes were mild and soft with a godlike loving kindness. And the reason I like to read that is just there are so many ways back to remembering the basic goodness of the heart. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, as we practice what, what we're doing these, these few weeks, we're practicing finding our way back and we'll catch how imitating, like thinking that, well, I want to be good, but wanting to be good, wanting to be kind, wanting to be compassionate or appreciative isn't actual appreciation or goodness or kindness or compassion. It's kind of stinky in a way because it's like wanting to look a certain way. It's coming from a tight heart, you know, me needing either to impress myself or needing, thinking I need to impress others. As opposed to being present, being sensitive with this added thing. So loving kindness practice, compassion practice, is also awareness practice like we always do. But there's a particular theme like I'm I'm particularly interested in being aware. I'm particularly interested in recognizing, sensing the natural activity of kindness as it's presenting itself in this moment, even if it's faint even if what's really dominating the mind is fear, but maybe there's just a sliver of activity in the mind, some part of the mind that goes, fear is really hard to bear. It isn't easy being afraid, and I care about it. It may not be the dominant part of the mind, but that doesn't mean in a mind, in any mind, any of our mind moments really, there isn't this, at least this potential, if not an active expression of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, or equanimity. So we want to, you know, as we, on purpose, for two weeks, take up this reflection, 
we want to start, we have to start from this place, at least uh, an open mind, and if not some real confidence that this heart, or mind you could say, is capable of expressing kindness or any of these qualities of love that we talk about, that it's always capable of doing that. I mean, you can even, just as an intellectual exercise, and we'll have small group meetings next week. We'll break up for half an hour of our time. And you have time to share in the small groups. But, you know, it would be interesting to uh, see if you can actually bring to mind a situation you've experienced or that you might experience where you couldn't even conceive of being in that situation without somehow recognizing the tenderness of the heart, the heart's capacity to be intimate and to be compassionate, to be caring, to be appreciative and joyful. And you can just see now, like, oh, no, I couldn't, couldn't there. You know, whatever it might be, you know, you could, you know, the, the one place, your enemy, whoever that, whoever you conceive of as your enemy, you know, and there you are, with your enemy, could you, you know, w- is the heart capable of, and, and the, the thing that seems the scarce is we think that if I allow the heart to shed its defenses, sort of its fixed views, this person's bad, this person should be punished, somebody's got to, you know, tell this person the truth. We somehow think if we uh, let the heart express its natural tenderness, its natural capacity to really connect. You know, when we say connect, it's not a superficial thing. Like even, you know, now mostly we're talking about connecting with another human being. But it's really not that different than connecting with our own life or connecting with anything in our experience. When, when the mind, when wisdom and love connects with a moment's experience, there's a real depth and breadth to that connection. So in Buddhism, we talk about it in terms of karma, understanding cause and effect. So let's say you're actually meeting with you know, a despicable, somebody that in a relative sense we'd call an evil person or a despicable person or a person who's causing a lot of harm, a lot of suffering in the world. And there we have our meeting. And it could be you're watching the news and you're just meeting them in your mind, right? That person. Or maybe you have face-to-face contact with that person you know, maybe that person is you. <laughs> you know, you're the bad guy, and you're now aware of that bad guy. And it feels so appropriate to hate yourself or to hate that politician or your boss or, you know, the bad guy, whoever that might be. And, um, and then somebody like me, you know, or the Buddha or somebody, you know, we read something and, and they say, well, you know, Love is always possible. It's always possible to meet the moment, to really meet it, which means the heart, the tender heart, the heart that's not afraid of being touched, not afraid of feeling what it feels. Right? So if we feel frightened by that evildoer or that monster or that terrible person, whether it's us or somebody else, like we're not afraid of maybe we've been abused by that person or really betrayed by that person. So we're not afraid of feeling the depth of that emotion. And we're not afraid of you know, letting it move. We're not confused by it. Yeah, honey, of course you're hurt. Of course you're afraid. You know, so we're right there with it. And how we, wh- how we respond to the person you know, it's like if we're okay, if we can be stable or balanced with our own sensations, experience of fear, of rage, of whatever we feel, then that balance, because we're willing, not, a, not afraid to feel what we feel, which is unpleasant, then because we're balanced with that pain, then we can see the other person in a balanced way too. And we realize that Whatever bad stuff that person is doing, it arises. What would it arise out of? 
You know, it's somebody who's in a really wise and generous and kind place. Are they going to go around doing bad things? I mean, they might accidentally, but as soon as they get any feedback from the world, if they're in a good place, a clear place, a loving place, they're going to correct their actions. So people who are doing bad things, they're in a tight box. And it's pretty, when our heart is balanced, clear, it's pretty easy to see that. I mean, this is a really important time because there's all kinds of reasons we can be justified in hating people, like a politician or you know whoever is the evildoer in your mind. Instead of, I mean, it doesn't take that much reflection, that much balance of mind to realize that a lot of these people would not be easy being them doesn't matter how successful they are or wealthy they are or powerful they are, right? Beings, some, I mean, we know what the suffering is like in our own mind and heart and body. Other beings are suffering. And then, you know, it's interesting, we look around the room, 180 people or whatever it is in the room, you know, looking around, it's good to look around. And we realize that Everybody here in this room, we're all navigating our lives, the twists and turns. Nobody has a map. Anybody have a map for their life? Like what is the right way, where is the wrong way? No. We're just doing the best to sort of make the choices we make and avoid the holes. And all the way along, there are so many other causes, you know, independent of our own, you know, the own little place the cards that we get to play, like how I show up. But there are all these other impersonal forces that are affecting how my life unfolds. And all the time through our life, we are experiencing loss. Sometimes we have a big loss and joys, which are pretty ephemeral, a little bit like sand through the hand. Those of you who have had kids, you know, growing up, Preteen, teen, twenties, thirties, right? It's just like sand through the fingers. And then we die. And then, you know, maybe there's a couple twenty year olds in the room, so we have to go, you know, sixty years, eighty years, nobody will be here. Nobody in this room will be here. Their bodies will be burnt or, you know, dust in one form or another. And we have I don't think any of us really know what happens, but we know pretty clearly that whatever this life is, it has an ending. doesn't mean that that's the whole story because we don't know, but we do pretty much know that this life ends. And, you know, when we reflect on these basic facts, this is nothing surprising, right? I haven't said anything that's out of the box or you haven't thought before. But when we bring that to mind, you see, it, being angry doesn't make as much sense. Throwing people out of our heart or somehow thinking, you know, yeah, they're bad people and they're good people. I mean, all these sort of divisions, these boundaries, all the different ways we allow our heart to be fragmented justify that it just stops making sense. And then it then the important thing is we notice it feels so much better when we do that. Like living that way just feels a lot better. And this is really why the Buddha strongly, strongly emphasized this reflection. I mean, it's really these reflections because there are many ways to, again, it's an awareness practice, but it's an awareness practice with a particular theme like we're training the mind to recognize kindness or we're training the mind to recognize the basic friendliness of the heart, the capacity of the heart to be moved by suffering and to respond in a, a really enlivened way. A lot of people think compassion is a kind of, uh, like compassion hurts. Isn't that sort of a general assumption? Like... Uh, you know, one example would be um, 
Well, this happened. To, I was teaching out in Massachusetts this last week, but I was talking to Wynn one night and our new, relatively new cat that we rescued from Common Grounds Retreat property uh, was outside and had caught a bunny, little bunny. And, uh, and this is, you know, this is the karmic choice of taking a beast in, you know, and, uh, and then it sort of wreaks havoc on the birds and the other creatures. And, you know, we have a little bell around the cat. But, but in any case, so, you know, there it is. The bunny, you know, being caught. And, uh, you know, we can let our heart be touched by that, right? It will be touched as soon as we see it. And then the question is, uh, it's so easy either to feel guilty or to feel badly about the small bunny. And, and then this is a good, like even with the image, it's a good time to ask ourselves, is compassion an enlivening and beautiful quality of mind? Or is compassion a heavy, burdensome state of mind? And so then the question is like in that situation where you're the you know, person who takes care of the cat and it's killed a little bunny, maybe it's not even dead. And so it's in pain or in its last moments or whatever, something like that. And there you are, you've got the cat inside. And then the question is, is there a way to be in that moment that would be for your heart enlivening and beautiful? Or is the only way for a human being to be in that situation, assuming you're choosing to be present, to connect, is the only way to be, is to, you know, for that experience to be really burdensome? And this is something, you know, not to give yourself a pat answer. Well, the Buddha says, so he must be right. But just to, I mean, doesn't it seem appropriate that we think about that and really then experiment? And it's the same thing with, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's been um, really painful the last, for, you know, Common Ground, it's been a number of years now, but it's especially poignant the last few years because of the news stories and it's just so much more apparent the ongoing injustice around race and the criminal justice system. And it just, and it, the complexity of it and uh, the enormity of it is just more and more apparent. And then it's like, so what is, what is the appropriate relationship of our heart, our mind, as it connects, as it hears and deconstructs and reflects on and attempts to be more honest about the sort of ongoing injustice in our communities. And I, I, you know, I, I notice honestly that my heart's all over the place. I mean, there's definitely guilt and there's self-righteousness and there's... Um, kind of a depressive feeling. But I also notice at times and more and more a kind of enlivening feeling like, and that enlivening feeling, part of it is is a, is a stripping away of superficiality. And this is what, this is one of the reasons compassion is such a healing emotion is it strips away superficiality. You know, my relative comfort, my relative privilege, it's not something I can bank on. It's like we think that, you know, having a comfortable life, but a comfortable life isn't very comfortable when we start including everything else, you know, some of the other realities that we're right, that are all around us. And then, this is a, this is a thing about this practice, we don't always like to hear this, but it's, it's really true. It just slowly, I think for me, at least really slowly, and maybe that's true for everybody, it slowly, slowly dawns on the mind that the only way to be happy, the only way to be free, is to live a life of complete 
exposure and a complete giving away of the life itself. You know, in a in an obvious way, as I mentioned earlier, we can't take it can't take anything with us. So whatever we build up, knowledge, money, relationships, it's all going one way or another. So instead of like that being my strategy for safety and happiness, we find just in little ways, and it and there's no right way to do it, like being an activist in these big issues in the world, like racial injustice that I brought up or any of the other bigger issues, doesn't mean we have to pour our energy into these bigger issues. It just means we have to pour our life energy into goodness. And it's better that it not be idealistic, like about a particular issue. It's better if it's like moment to moment, like how we show up. It's like I'm showing up in this moment in a generous way. So we're all in a Buddhist studies class. So you're already here until 9 o'clock. So this, that means this is the place where we show up with, you know, in, in Buddhism we talk about these four emotions, kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. This is our generosity. These are qualities of the heart that are expansive, like I tried to suggest in the guided meditation. They want to radiate out. And so if we want to give our life away, if we find that the opposite, when we have that sort of, it's about me, it's what I need, it's the safety I want, it's about me wanting you to notice me. So all of that sort of allegiance to my drama, my self-dramas, when we start seeing that, that even if that's done in a really good way, clever way, competent way, it's never going to be satisfying. But what we start to find through uh, studying and then feeling and remembering these wholesome qualities of the heart, which are really reflecting a, a wisdom, the wisdom of non-attachment, it's a good way to think about love. It is the active expression of the wisdom of non-attachment, or what Ajahn Chah calls the reality of non-grasping. So when the heart isn't obsessed with a self-story, then it's capable of living in this generous way. And it will look different, like I said, for everybody. But the Buddha talks about it in terms of these four emotions. But, you know, it's this seamless spectrum of beautiful qualities of the heart. You know, not just four, but we can remember four. So that helps us remember the spectrum from equanimity, which is a cooler kind of love that has a lot of um, balance, equanimity does, and that balance allows us to be really intimate through joy, more active, um, appreciative kind of love, to compassion, really able to get close to pain and suffering, and then the basic friendliness, which is sort of the support of all of the other qualities. So we have these four qualities, and we're realizing that that's all we need, that we can basically meet any moment of life. And we're learning to count. Like, and, and we just see that those qualities have, like once they're set in motion, they have a tendency to expand and include more and more, like the next moment and the next moment. And I'm sure you've noticed this, and in the small groups next week, so you can reflect this next week, both about what happens during this next week, but also from further back in your life, where you had an authentic moment of joy, appreciative joy, or equanimity, or kindness, or compassion. And then notice how then in the next moments, it's like your way of being in those next moments, the people you related to in those next moments, it like spilled over. You were sort of in this place, a little bit like that lady from the passage I read. You know, that just releasing that mouse and realizing the goodwill of like, yeah, I'm not going to, I could kill you, but I'm not going to kill you. And yeah, maybe you'll get back in the house, but, you know, then I'll catch you and, and eventually, you know, hopefully you'll learn this is not the place for you. And maybe I'll get around to sealing off how you get into the house <laughs> so we don't have to do this dance together. But just that like simple willingness to not harm 
when we don't have to harm. And we just feel like, oh yeah, that's a more expansive, lighter way. Instead of like spiders are bad, mice are bad. You know, now with Zika and the West Nile, I mean, you notice your relationship to mosquitoes changing? And it's like, uh, it's so, it's like I was talking about politicians, but how about mosquitoes? Like, can we take care of ourselves with these four emotions? Not necessarily to let the mosquitoes bite us, but can we do what, whatever we're going to do without fear and hatred? Can we get involved in the political process without hatred, without judgment, without ill will in the heart? I mean, that's, that's really the trick. And the thing is, we have every reason to figure out how to do this. Because what we find, you know, just from being more and more mindful, whenever the mind is under that other gravitational pull, you know, the self-dramas, which involve the opposite of kindness and the opposite of compassion and the opposite of joy and the opposite of equanimity. So the opposite of kindness, of course, is irritation and anger. Opposite of compassion is a willingness to harm. Opposite of joy, appreciative joy is envy and jealousy. Well, what about me? What about me? And the opposite of equanimity is agitation. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of a mistrust of what's showing up in our life. Now, those are very familiar. I don't know about you, but those are pretty familiar attitudes that we get swept around with quite often in life. So I want to save some time for group discussion tonight and be good to, uh, for people who are relatively new. If you have any questions about how to do this reflection, now everybody who signed up got an email this afternoon, not too long before the class began, so maybe you didn't see it. Um, I think I sent it about six. But it has some resources, some guided meditations, and this talk will be up hopefully within a week or so. And then you can use the guided meditation there. I'll also put up tonight on that website, that webpage that I linked to, um, some guiding, guidance I gave out at IMS when I was teaching there in May. Um, so there are some up there that you can use for people who are relatively new. But there's a lot of room for creativity in how you do the meditation. So the important thing is just to get the basic instruction. You're sitting down in a comfortable way. You're being present, right? It's just the basic awareness practice that we've been all doing for however long we've been doing it, except that we're keeping a very particular theme in mind. Now, the way that I guided you tonight, just to review, and then you can ask questions or also just share any reflection you have about what I've said thus far, but the basic process that, if you don't have a better idea, you can do is maybe do a little forgiveness reflection just to loosen the screws of the heart a little bit, to realize, in a sense, we're doing the best we can, and we make a lot of mistakes, and instead of hating ourselves or hating others for making mistakes, we can forgive ourselves. Because we understand that we're living with this conditioned mind, nobody in this room, myself included, we didn't choose the conditioning of the mind that the mind has, right? So if you've got a short fuse, did you like, in the buffet line and you know before you were born into this world I'll take a short fuse this time that should be interesting you know or I'll take this I'll take you know a needy heart or I'll take you know a lot of defensiveness or no we just causes and conditions we end up with this personality and in this relative world each of us were responsible for the personality we have and you're right, it isn't fair. There's nothing fair about it, except it is the way that it is. That's the one fact we have. Whether it's fair is not really the question. The question is, is my personality the way that it is? You know, Are these latent tendencies, these conditioned habits, the way they are? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's how it is. It is like this, this personality. And we can be forgiving. And loosen the screws. So that's the first step. Just And it's really 
just kind of grounding that it's already this way, the messy world, the messy personality, it's already this way. So my practice begins by coming into alignment with reality. Instead of, I'm going to begin my practice from an idealistic point of view. You know, it just doesn't make sense to do that. So we ground. And that's really what the forgiveness reflection is about. Again, a lot of room for experimenting, but the tradition, one of the traditional ways is, you know, you just practice asking for forgiveness, practice offering forgiveness, and then practice forgiving yourself for being an imperfect human being. And then what I've been liking to do more recently is uh, really work on the level of the your mind's relationship to your body. Because I really, like I said in the guided meditation, it really feels like the relationship that affects all of our other relationships. So take some time, you know, maybe 10 minutes. And I did it in the terms of a body scan, but you could go right to what we were doing at the end of the body scan where we were working with the whole body. And I like coordinating it with the breath, but you don't need to. So the way we did it tonight, we breathed in, and it's just the, the breathing in is just a reminder that there is a body here, there are sensations here with the body, and I can either be averse to them or I can care about them. And I'm going to practice caring about them because I have some intuition. It's an easier way to go through life. So let me see. What's that like? Is it possible to have a friendly relationship to the sensations as they actually are? Yeah, it is. But it, it takes some training because the mind has a lot of habit around being superficial, being disconnected, being irritated by unpleasant sensations, trying to hold on to the pleasant sensations. So we're purifying the mind's way of relating its way of being with sensation. right? Because we're holding in mind, this is the theme, and it's like, however feeble it is, is there anybody in the room, self-confession or public confession, is there anybody in the room who doesn't have at least a little confidence that your heart or mind is capable of being good. Right? We do. So we're calling on that. And like, oh, if that's actually true, that this heart, this mind, has this capacity to be friendly, to be good, to be patient, to be kind, then here's your opportunity. There are these sensations here. Let's connect with that friendly attitude, that friendly, that kind attitude, that patient, interested attitude. And we work with it. And so either with a body scan or just go right to the whole body, coordinate it with the breathing. I like the phrase, like when, I, when the mind needs it or when the practice needs it, you know, breathing in, I'm willing to be close. I'm willing to connect. I'm willing to feel what I feel in terms of sensations. Because that's part of that basic friendliness is I'm willing to show up. And then the, with the out-breath, I, I usually remind, try to remember to trust. Like part of having a moment with another being or with this body, with sensations, is like uh, that sense of ease. Like because I'm willing to be close, um, I manifest or the expression of that willingness to be close is the ease of not running away, the ease of not trying to fix it or make it different than it is. It's like, it's already this way. So when we have a moment like with the whole world of connecting and letting the world be, it doesn't mean the world is in a perfect place. It's not. Nobody thinks, I don't think. Anybody think the world's in a good place? No, I mean, there's a lot of room for improvement. But because it's already this way right now, why can't we be at ease with the messiness, the imperfections of the world, the imperfections of our personality? It doesn't mean we're going to just let it stay the way it is. It just means because it's already this way, I'm going to be at ease. This goes back to seeing the little bunny. It's really good practice when we see something and you notice all of the instincts to panic, to get tight, to want to blame. 
and to realize how skillful it is, not our habit, but how skillful it is to start with relaxation. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something. I'm going to show up and I'm going to respond, but I'm not going to know really how to respond unless I just let this in. Be undefended for a, a moment, at least, a couple moments. And then I might get some clarity. Like maybe, you know, if the bunny had a little, you know, had more sort of sophistication and language capacity, it would whisper in its dying moments, your suffering isn't helping. You know, you sitting here fretting about my dying is not helping me in the least. That's what it would say. I prefer you suffering somewhere else. This is a challenging moment for me. (laughs) You feeling guilty or you kind of freaking out isn't helping. But we can realize that on our own, you know, that that kind of reaction to difficulty or suffering around us isn't really helping those people. What helps is what they, what the bunny needs, you know, in their own, its own version, like not being afraid. That's what the bunny needs, not being afraid. Anne's nodding. She does hospice work. People who do that kind of work realize that one way or another, over time, if they survive in that work, that it's a real blessing. It's a kind of that circle of giving and receiving to be able to learn how to show up in the dying process with that uh, generosity of not being afraid. Did you want to add to that? Yeah, yeah, it's that circle of giving and receiving. And it and it's just uh in that way there's always something to do. That's the great thing about these qualities of the heart. They're always expansive, right? So it's a movement of the heart. It's enlivening in that way. Now, clearly the heart can be touched when we see suffering. But what do we do with that pain? Right? Do we freeze up around it? And basically, not that we do it out loud, but on some subtle, mostly unconscious level, we tell ourselves a story that the pain of loss or the, that pain of compassion, that it's bad. That to feel things deeply is bad. Like, you know, the terrible stories we hear of another person being shot or a, a small child drowning, getting crossing the Mediterranean or, you know, all the many things that we hear about all the time. And can we learn how to let the heart feel what it feels but not pathologize that sensitivity? Is it actually bad in some way to be feeling things like that? And that's that we have to explore for ourselves. So anyway, we're changing the relationship to the body and then in that cultivation like we did tonight so you maybe you're there for a while and the idea of working with the body is it's pretty concrete relationship and we have most of us some history with our body you know hopefully we've cultivated some relationship we haven't been entirely unconscious of our body through our life and so we should have with practice some success at getting more confident of the heart's capacity to relate in this generous way in this intimate way in this place where there's a circle of giving and receiving. And that's that expansive energy that we're talking about. And then when that's stronger, then let that be the bulk of your meditation practice. You're actually, this is the object of awareness, the circle, this movement of emotion, that it's a wholesome emotion. You can just call it love if you want. But love has different flavors. It could have the flavor of compassion or joy or basic friendliness, or or, uh, equanimity, that kind of more cool, balanced love. So there's something moving, something that has an expansive feel, like a a radiation or radiance, and then you remember it. This is your object of awareness. And then use phrases or words only if it's needed, only if it helps. Images, so it's really this creative place where Maybe when it's fading or when the mind's getting trapped in a little negative, not so expansive loop, then you 
you bring a, a phrase to mind or an image to mind that reminds the mind or that reminds the heart of its capacity to expand in these beautiful ways, this circle of giving and receiving, of loving. And, and like Anne was saying, when we love, we're receiving something. We're re- receiving, I mean, literally what we're receiving is the freedom from aversion, the freedom from negativity. Because when we're in that loop, the mind is experiencing the freedom. And this is what happens, you know, when we're in a tight place and then there's this opportunity to do something nice, we feel immediately lifted out of our dark, depressive state. This is why people have cats. You know, they have a terrible day or maybe they're having a terrible life, but then once a day they go home and feed the cat. And for that sort of, you know, three minutes of opening the can and putting it in the bowl and putting it down and seeing that sort of basic happiness of that beast having some food, we feel good. You know, like, I mean, I know you could pathologize somebody in a really difficult, dark place could even, oh, I wish I could give you more or, you know, I should have been home all day. So there are ways to even sort of contaminate that. Or smiling at somebody. But these little moments where we step out of whatever negative loop we might be in and we can learn to recognize, oh, that is that circle of giving and receiving. That's the generosity of the heart that then is fed by that same generosity. The giving is the receiving. Because when we're giving, we've stepped out of this kind of self-indulgent, self-obsessed negativity, this allegiance to these, this tight allegiance to our self-dramas. So again, just remember all of the earlier part of whatever technique you use is getting to this bulk of the practice, which is the mind, the heart has enough confidence in this movement, this beautiful movement of the heart, however subtle or however faint it might be, but as long as you can keep it in mind, keep it in view, then let that be your meditation object. Really, so you're basically meditating on the lightness, the expansiveness, the goodness, so it will have a pleasant vibe to it. And then the practice matures when the, that experience of love, let's call it, more easily, readily expands, includes more and more, has a more embodied resonance. Like you feel it literally, you can feel it as if it's spreading every part of the body is somehow touched, uh, affected by that lightness. So it changes the, like how one experiences their body. The body starts to feel light because the body and the mind, they reflect each other. So when the mind is in a more beautiful place, then it affects how the body is experienced too. So that's just like a barometer for that quality. And then if you have a so-called good sit when you're doing the loving-kindness reflection or holding it as a theme, then when you step out, like I said, you'll feel a little different for a while. It, it will last for a while if you have a good sit. It's like, you know, people say, I'm walking on clouds. You know, they had a, a moment, and then they feel a little bit transcended, the heaviness, the darkness, the negativity, that often can dominate our minds to a certain degree. And then we have some immunity for a while, but those habits tend to reassert themselves. But that's okay, because we're rewiring the mind, and eventually the practice will have its effect, and the mind will have new habits. So anyway, we have more than 20 minutes. It would be nice to hear both your comments about some of the things I've said tonight, but also any specific questions And we can learn a lot in these small group sharings that we'll have next week, but the whole group sharing we'll have now for people who honestly share what they've learned over the years and how they've sort of fallen into holes and how they've learned from those holes and how they've cultivated these wholesome qualities and what they've learned works for them. Yeah, please start us off. But wait for the mic. So remember with the mic, I'll turn it on, 
pointed at you like this, not up and down. That way we'll be able to hear you. Want to pass it to the back? No, I like uh, what you said about uh, like aw- so. awareness first um, before you know your reaction or your everything else. It, it just I got this image of like emergency medical responders that show up on a scene, and it's like you wouldn't take somebody from the car and put them into the traffic. You know that awareness of the situation and your condition. Um, when you come up against this negativity um, to realize that like to go to joy or compassion is not a weakness that's your strength to do that by choice and you're winning you know with that yeah thanks for sharing that what's your name mark mark thanks mark hey christoph you know the second button on the left is that on Yeah, try it up a little higher. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, please. You want to pass the mic over? It's nice if people say their names. My name is Leanne. I feel like you can hear me well now. Um, I generally feel like I have a very loving relationship with a loving kindness practice and meditation and for the summer I've been taking care of a friend's child and I feel like the more loving and kind and soft I am around him the bigger and more aggressive and more fearful he responds and so what I'm sitting with is this question of when when is it loving and kind to walk away and get space and to maybe find my center again versus sitting with somebody who's really vulnerable and and wh- I, what does that look like and i can't even formulate the question in the way that mm. i want to right now but is that coming across i think so yeah okay. and it's a really uh common but important question and like i'll ask you a question what do you think the coloring or the attitude of the mind is that somehow this being you uh is less included in the intention to be kind to be compassionate than the person you're caring for you know that you're responsible for because here's the thing about love it doesn't really care it goes out equally everywhere right it doesn't it doesn't have an agenda if it has an agenda then it's affected by a somebody and so we were really uncovering that's why it's nice to start with your body because it's just a little and this i think is an important correction to some of the ways that loving kindness practice is taught where we're kind of going through these lists of people and it, it's really important that at the beginning of a, every session that you're formally doing this kind of practice, but then also just generally, that you really connect with, it's more important to connect with an authentic experience of love, which is always going to be love for its own sake. It's not about your relationship with another person. It's it's love, and then it, the love, in a sense, is just like looking for anything, anyone, to be loving with. And so th- that means we would be just as vulnerable to being loved as anybody else around us because the very characteristic or the very nature is to be non-discriminat- uh, non-discriminative. Just like... Because it's really that... That's why, like in the chant we did, you know, send it there, there, behind us, above, below, everywhere, including ourselves. So the idea is that we're uncovering this quality of the heart that just, it sees in a whole way. It doesn't see in a fragmented way, in a dualistic way. So then, if you're in that space, it would be interesting to see how you might relate differently to that child when you're just as caring, just as interested in your own well-being as his well-being, doesn't mean you're going to neglect him. 
but it just means that there's this um, this all-embracing quality, and and what's related to that, Leanne, too, is this uh, teaching in the Buddhist in the Buddhist teachings around love about how metta or love it's like water pouring water into a vessel. The water just perfectly fills that vessel, that jar, that vase. It doesn't have to think like, how am I going to get myself in there? And it's like, instead of like, oh, how, how is love going to look when I meet Ryan? Or how I'm going to go home or I'm going to meet this person or do this thing. and I really want to do it in a loving way. How, see, we don't have to figure it out. The strategy would be to really stay grounded in awareness and stay grounded in being able to remember the reality of that basic goodness of the heart and trust that how it looks, what I say to the kid, what I don't do, whether I move forward, whether I back off, that that will come naturally from being grounded, trusting that basic goodness of the heart instead of having a a set strategy. Yeah. Sure, if you have more. Briefly, so I think my perception previously is that it's all expansive and you know, oh, everywhere it's boundaryless. But can there be boundaries? I guess is the follow-up question then. But the and is that still being too prescriptive? Am I am I still trying overthinking and not not just being in my heart? If that's my follow-up question. Yeah, and you might. <laughs> Love might just be making boundaries, but boundaries aren't aren't boundaries for love. Boundaries are on this other level of like, no, you can't do that, or no, I can't be with you right now. You know, I don't feel safe, or you know, when you, when you act that way, I don't want to be around you, so I'm going to take a break. So, but that can why can't that come out of love and compassion, right? So, here's a, this is another thing to investigate for your small group sharings next week is um, when to the, to the degree you're operating more and more from a place of what feels like authentic love. Does it make you dysfunctional in situations in your life? Or does it help you become more practically functional in all the you know, many types of relationships and situations we have to navigate in our life? So another word is, no, no, in this place I need aversion. Or in this place I really need a judging mind. So really ask yourself, like, is that true? Really check it out and, and let's report back in our small groups next week. Thanks so much, Leanne. It's really good questions, comments. Who's next? Right next to you. So I've, I've, like the, yeah. so I've never asked a question here because I think it's really hard to describe to have words for what happens in here, I guess, and when I'm meditating. But just this morning, I was meditating, working with an experience I had over the weekend um, and all the beings in the experience. an encounter with the police and I happened to be able to use my privilege but there were other people there who did not have that and it just woke up tons in my mind so I was practicing this morning with all those beings and I moved so quickly into a hugely expansive place that it scared me and I just was so curious about that like I didn't know if I could continue sitting and and then and then I thought well it'll happen again when I come tonight and it of course didn't but um, I'm just curious about that experience of intense expansion or rapid or mm-hmm. and did, did you find that um, I mean we c- the, the it gets it can get problematic if you get identified with it right? But assuming that you didn't 
at least for a while, didn't get identified with it, did it get in the way of functioning skillfully in that situation? In the sit itself? Or any time, yeah. Like, did it make you dysfunctional or make you less skillful than you might have been? I don't think so. Yeah. But it, but that doesn't mean it didn't feel disconcerting or like... But Just felt big. Yeah. But it's unfam- that bigness and is unfamiliar. unfamiliar. Yeah. Because when, when the mind or heart, uh, for whatever good reasons, when it begins to drop its, bo- its habit of creating boundaries, then we'll find ourselves in an unfamiliar place because we have mostly lived in a world where our mind is creating boundaries and then living as if those boundaries have some real, some ultimate reality as opposed to just constructions of our mind based on our cultural conditioning. And it's scary because we don't know who we are. We don't know, we don't know anything in that new world. So it's scary. But the, the question to always ask ourselves as we get more and more familiar is, do I find that I'm functioning appropriately? and maybe even more skillfully as, I, as whatever this life is continues to do what's next. That's the thing. We don't have to have a sort of narrow sense of self to know to take the garbage out, to say something to this person, to do something over here. Because that activity of just getting through the day, it isn't even you or me who's doing it now. There are like all these different patterns that have already been established and then there's this one pattern that does this all day long. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. So it feels like there's a central actor doing everything, but it's really not that way. It's like there's a lot of you know, uh, coherence, overlapping coherence in the system. We think there's just one, but there's just these different coherent patterns. Some are relatively unskillful. Some are relatively skillful. And one of those patterns is this pattern of saying, it's me. But that's just a pattern. And eventually, if we keep practicing awareness, you'll notice that that pattern of taking things personally is just a pattern and nothing more than a pattern. Just a psychological pattern, habit. And when that starts to be seen, it's like that expansive feeling, or you could call it other things. Some people experience or describe it more as like, ground falling away below you. So instead of like, which is even a more, this is even more of a, initially can be terrifying, like no ground. But as Joseph Goldstein used to say way back when, uh, you know, it's like someone throwing you out of an airplane and you're just totally freaking out as you're falling, 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 falling. And after a while you realize there's no ground. So initially it's like total panic and eventually you go, well, it's actually not such a problem falling you know, in a free fall, as long as there's no ground, is it really a problem? No, it's not a problem. <laughs> so maybe time for two or maybe three more people. Other thoughts, questions, or just experiences? Yeah, Kevin, please. I'm going to pass the mic over. Um, one of the issues I ran into, I practiced metta for um, but I stopped practicing because after a while I got, I got tired and I noticed even tonight during um, the guided meditation that I just it, plus it's the end of a long day and I, I just my mind is very tired and I just found it like almost like uh, I dreaded it for to mind sort of go through the, the talk of you know, realizing these things and, and saying phrases and and then even trying to be a little creative and come up with my own way of saying it. There's just kind of an aversion, like, oh, it, it's heavy. Yeah, but in a perfect world, you wouldn't necessarily have somebody guiding you because then as soon as something like that arose, you'd, you'd adapt and adjust and you'd work with that like, oh, this you know, let's just, be, to be provocative, let's call it, oh, poor me, I'm tired, I had a hard day, now I've got to do all these nudgy phrases or, you know, these mind things of paying attention to this or that. 
And so then just naturally, because the most important two things with this practice is awareness, like just showing up to what's real, and that's what's real, what you just described. And the second piece is remembering whatever confidence you have, however faint it is, that as you're showing up with this experience, the heart's capable of being good. There's a basic friendliness, a basic goodness of the heart. It's always available. So what is it? What does that good heart do with this? Like, oh, you know, like, I'm tired, I've got to do the, uh, that complaining mind, that oh, poor me mind. What does that basic good heart do with that? It goes, oh, you've had a hard day. I can care about that. I'm good with that, right? I know, I know how to show up with that. It's like, honey, you've had a bad day. And then you're doing the practice. So you, you scrap the body scan, you know, it's because the idea is be present with whatever's real and keep the theme of basic friendliness, basic goodness in mind as you're connecting with what's ever real. And so if there's nothing predominant like what arose for you, then why not connect with the body? You know, whether you just go right to the whole body or you're sort of taking your time to go through the different places of the body or, you know, do or not do a forgiveness practice. But if some resistance shows up, instead of like repressing the resistance, no, no, I'm doing loving kindness practice, you don't belong. You see, that doesn't make sense for the mind to say to something that's showing up, you don't belong here. Then we're right back into the world we live in, where there's racial injustice and other kinds of oppression. It's just now it's getting acted out in our own mind. You don't belong here. This is, you know, I don't want to see you. I don't want, you scare me. So the, it's like that's the key is to remember the basic element. I'm going to show up with what's ever real and I'm going to remember, even if it's just borrowed faith, that I think this heart is capable of relating in a beautiful, skillful way. It may not like be roses and sunshine, but like, it's just it's going to be good, something that's trustworthy. And so then the question, whatever, given whatever shows up, is like, well, I wonder what that's going to look like here. Because sometimes it's not even that obvious. It's more like a flat, numb, dead to the world, nothing matters, uh, and which can also have a flavor of doubt, like I'm just not built to do this practice. It probably doesn't work anyway. It's probably a cult. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And then it's like, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah, it might be a cult, but I can relate in a positive way <laughs> to that. You know, because, yeah. Like, it isn't easy sort of navigating this world because there are sort of strange groups and you don't know what's behind the scenes and, and I can care about that. I can care about the uncertainty. You didn't drink the Kool-Aid today, <laughs> did you? <laughs> Somebody get him some Kool-Aid. <laughs> Time for one, maybe two more. Anybody else? Other thoughts you have or questions? Oh, just experiences from your own e investigation of love in your life? Yeah, Carrie, please. People help pass the mic over. Hi, my name is Carrie. I think that this is just a question and it might be sort of a, a quick yes, absolutely, duh kind of answer. Um, but... I I have a sibling who's experiencing depression right now, and I always think that this type of practice might be really helpful um, to her. But I don't I don't really know how to approach it with her, and I also don't know if it will be helpful. I'm like maybe that's just this is something that like depression is a whole new beast, and this is not something that really would help. Um, and then you mentioned the thing about how, like, the the dying rabbit doesn't need someone freaking out, like, trying to help it. Not, and that's kind of what I feel like with her sometimes, because all I want to do is help, but I'm not quite sure how. So I guess just the main question is, would you say this type of practice would be beneficial? And if so, like, how would you go about introducing that to someone? Yeah, well, you might connect with Dan, 
who I think is in the room. Is Dan here tonight? Yeah. Who Dan and uh, Jana and um, Caleb run the community group, the Mindfulness and Depression group, and they can give you a little bit of information. But I think the important thing is for her to sort of get a sense of what to do next, she needs to be somewhat balanced and grounded and honestly aware of how it is, which is not easy when you've got a lot of unpleasant mind states. So you can practice, you can model that kind of fearless presence when you're around her and even when you think of her. Like it may be easier to start practicing even when you're not with her, but she just comes to mind. And then look at the attitude you have when she comes to your mind. And can you, and when you're, her suffering, her very real suffering comes to your mind, like d- just notice in subtle ways whether your mind and body gets a little tight. And like, well, that's not helping. So, because whenever her situation comes to mind, to her mind, she probably out of habit gets tight. But that then skews how we respond to our situation. So when people around us can model not being afraid of suffering, our suffering, then they're modeling what we need to have modeled. Like, I have to connect with my suffering, my difficult situation, without freaking out, without getting tight, because then I'll be able to see more clearly how to move forward and what might kind of be a useful step to explore. Why don't we just uh, let go of the words and just sit... Just take a few breaths together. I'll just end with this quote from Jack Kornfield that I like a lot. It's a recent interview. Just a paragraph. He says, Over the debt kit... Over the decades, I experienced my practice becoming more, much more full of metta, loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness, than it was at the beginning. For me and for a lot of people I've talked with, in the beginning, we're striving for peak experiences and enlightenment experiences. I have come to a very different understanding of the path, that it's not so much about perfecting ourselves as it is about perfecting our love. Practice has become less of a duty and much more of an invitation to love, to vastness, and to mystery. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.